Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, greetings, everyone, and it is my great privilege and pleasure to be speaking today with Glenn Parry. Big welcome to you, Glenn. Very pleased to be here. Um, here is very different these days. Here is very different indeed. <laughs> here we are in 2020 in these unprecedented times. I'm just aware of the very original and extraordinary way in which you have responded to these times in a way that is of extreme benefit to us all. And I'm just going to share a little bit with our listeners if they don't know you so well, Glenn. Glenn is a PhD of Basque, Aragon, Spanish and Jewish descent. Glenn is the author of Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. Yes, yes and yes to that. <laughs> and Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity and Nature. Glenn, you are an educator, an eco-psychologist, a political philosopher whose passion is to reform thinking, education and society into a coherent, cohesive whole. You're the founder and past president of the Seed Institute. And Glenn is currently the president of the think tank Circle for Original Thinking. And that's to be found at originalthinking.us. Glenn has organized and participated in the groundbreaking Language of Spirit conferences from 1999 to 2011 that brought together Native and Western scientists in dialogue moderated by Leroy Little Bear. He's appeared in several documentary films, including Journey to the Turtle Island, a biographic piece exploring David Peet's life and participations in the dialogue circles with Spanish filmmaker Miriam Servet. Glenn is a member of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the Theosophical Society as part of a lifelong interest in bridging the arts and the sciences. My goodness me, I am just so excited to be in this conversation with you because as I'm just absorbing the background to this conversation and to your life, you know, I'm just aware of there are just so many themes right there. 
that I resonate with so deeply. And of course, the publisher, North Atlantic Books, I believe they were originally called Society for the Study of Native Arts and Sciences, was it? Oh, I thought they were North Atlantic Books when they were on the uh, East Coast. Yeah. (laughs) Because it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I see what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so lovely. That's so lovely. Because when I looked into the history, you know, of the the original North Atlantic Books, you know, where they originated from, their founder, I believe, because they go back quite a long way. But the Mm. point is, what what we're conjuring up here is that interface between the sciences and the arts, an investigation into the nature of compassion, what you understand compassion to be, uh, how it's shown up in your life. Because I can see that you have a really quite extraordinary lineage that you were born into, it sounds like. And I would imagine that seems to draw on quite a few different streams of culture and so on that must have had a quite profound influence on your capacity to demonstrate and embody and call for compassion in the world. What, mm. what, is it, what does compassion mean for you? Hmm. Well, I want to address that from first, from what you were just speaking about, from from experience. I think I was blessed to have a uh, my grandmother, mi abuela, a Basque woman who walked 300 miles from the High Pyrenees in Spain and got a job as a chef's attendant in Barcelona, came to New York City and... Uh, was married to an Aragon Spanish man, and that gave birth to my father. My father taught me a class when I was 12 years old, maybe 13, at the Unitarian Fellowship, because my mother was Jewish. My father was ostensibly Catholic, but uh, they both were really secular. He was a scientist, an engineer. My mother found religion after her father died, but uh, we weren't really raised that way. So we we were raised at a Unitarian Fellowship. And my father taught a class. He was intellectually curious. He taught a class on world religion to me and other students there. At uh, And he was really a great teacher because he took us to the houses of worship. Mm. Um, I still remember going to the Russian Orthodox Church because smell is associated with memory. So um, that was so full of incense. And we learned about Buddhism, Shinto, Jainism was one of my favorites, Zoroastrianism, Taoism, pretty much every every way of viewing the world, except for Native American worldview, and my father may not have known, but there was a, and still is, a Native American reservation on Long Island, not very far from the Hamptons. Most people don't know, but the Shinnecock are out there right next to the Hamptons. Um, So, yeah, there's no signs, you know. You have to know how to get there. So your question, you know, what is compassion? I mean, I remember learning very early age just about the Jains. Of course, Mahatma Gandhi was a Jain, and the Jains who who have compassion and caring for all beings who, who try mightily to not ever harm or damage another critter who sweep the ground in front of them as they walk so that they don't step on any crawling ones. That made a very big impression on me at a very early age. Now, if you ask me what is compassion, 
I don't think I can separate it from wisdom. You know, I think of the Tibetan Buddhists often putting together wisdom and compassion. So to have compassion, to know how to be in another person's moccasins Mm. takes wisdom. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes effort, I suppose, but it also Mm -hmm. takes something that, you know, I'm certainly still aspiring to, you know, the the capacity to to feel in your heart nature's rhythms, Mm. that's actually where wisdom comes in for me because a wise person I don't think of as a storehouse of knowledge. That's a library, you know. I mean, uh, to some extent, wise people could store knowledge, but it's really the really wise person is the one that's vibrating and in tune with the unfolding energies of nature. And so... That sort of person is one that I'm drawn to. Mm. Um, And that sort of person has access to the timing of the timing of how things are unfolding. Like grandfather Leon Sicatero was the one of the dearest elders to me ever. And his own children told me that he never got angry at them. It's really incredible. So he had the capacity to, if somebody was angry, to let it pass. So he had the wisdom to let it pass and to shift that energy. So if somebody is angry or somebody's upset or, and you have compassion for them, you allow them to be. Mm-hmm. You allow them to be who they are. And in doing that, you come into a rapport, you know, I, I know you, you know, of course, very, very familiar with the, with the words of Rumi and, you know, you, you meet on that field there. You don't, your consciousness is not separate from the other person's consciousness. You, you merge, you meet on the field and in that way you can vibrate together mm-hmm. and you begin to see perhaps through the other person's eyes to the extent that you can. And that seems like that is compassion. Yes, beautiful. It's lovely. I was just talking with this Tibetan nun, in fact, the other day, and she was just talking about a bird needs two wings, you know, and the one wing is the wisdom where you're building that skillful awareness that is able to just embrace whatever emotions or whatever weather passes you by with a spaciousness of presence, loving, unconditional presence. And then the compassion is is absolutely the embodiment of that at deeper and deeper levels. Mm. So that's that's so beautiful, the way you're describing it. I can hear even in the people that you're you're conjuring up and sharing with us even now, the, the people who you've been blessed. I mean, imagine having a father who is able to share with you such a wide spectrum of understanding of spirituality of the different streams of of spiritual practice that must have been extraordinary it was and he oddly he wasn't really um religious man but he he had an intellectual curiosity about all these things so and at his own funeral i when i gave a eulogy 
a man came bounding out of the audience afterwards excitedly to tell me how he was Zoroastrian and he carpooled with my father and how uh, they had had so many wonderful conversations. He became much more religious over time, but at first I think it was an intellectual curiosity, but it was enough to stimulate me as a young person, so it was great. That's incredible. That's absolutely beautiful. And so do you have siblings? What was the sort of context in which you... You were growing as a child. Where were you? Oh, we were in uh, Long Island, New York. Mm. New York. I have a sister, an older sister and a younger brother. Ah. And uh, Neil. Yes. So you're in the middle. I'm a middle child. I'm grateful for that. First of all, I believe, also learning from Grandfather Leon Secretaire, I always pray to the ancestors and, and for everything that has happened to bring us to this moment in time. I mean, that's mm. a a daily prayer. So whatever your experience is, is, is good. <laughs> it's, it is your experience. So this is what you have to work with. So being the middle child can lend oneself to being kinder and more compassionate. It can, and it can, it can lend, lend some sense of balance or being a peacemaker. That's certainly become a increasingly a goal for mine. That was a goal in writing the book, Original Politics, Making America mm. Sacred Again. Mm. Yeah. It's a, a time where peacemaking is, is called for, just like the Iroquois, who, who way, way back, and by some, by their own estimates, the Iroquois, or the, what they call themselves, is the Haudenosaunee, or people of the Longhouse. In their story, there was a peacemaker that came to them approximately, you know, thousand years after Christ, perhaps, but it could, you know, there's a very, very long time ago by their estimates. And that peacemaker, who's called peacemaker, sometimes called Degawinda, but uh, is from another tribe. He's not from the, the Cayuga, the Seneca, the Oneida, the, the Mohawk. He's not from one of the five tribes. I think I left one out there. <laughs> and the Oneida, I think I left out. He's not from one of those tribes, but he has a vision of peace. Mm. And peacemaker comes and uh, speaks to Hiawatha, First, he spoke to a woman, Jakonsana, and she's converted into this vision of peace because the tribes then were warring amongst themselves. And then, and then Hiawatha becomes his spokesperson, and all the five tribes are agreed to unite, mm -hmm. um, except there's one man, Tadadado, who's portrayed as an evil person with snakes coming out of his hair, almost Medusa-like. And uh, Tadadado resists until Peacemaker actually gives him more responsibility, says that the Anadaga nation would be the nation that would be the fire keepers. So Tadadado is won over, the tribes are won over, they, they find a symbol of peace, which is the great tree of peace, they partially uproot it, they bury their weapons underneath there, and the four white roots of peace are said to be to extend in all directions. And the woman, the woman Jakonsana, who was first a convert to peace, she becomes the, the person who names the male council, nominates the male councilman of, of 50. And this becomes the precursor of what happens later for the 
colonies. That is the way that Chief Conastego tells Ben Franklin that the colonies should unite, and in fact they did. Um, and, and so the, some of the deep, all the American concepts, the ideals that the, are attributed to the founding fathers came mostly, if not entirely, from indigenous values of liberty and justice, natural rights. It all came from Native America. Whoa, that's so rich just to hear that background. It sounds like we've both been very deeply touched by Aboriginal and original Indigenous values. Obviously, we all have, but many of us, of course, have been, have lost connection with those. And I would imagine that must be so much a part of what has driven you to and inspired your writing is to reawaken that understanding, would you say, to, to restore that understanding? Yes, I mean, in a, in a, in a very succinct way, the, the biggest difference between American politics and original or sacred politics of, mm. of any Aboriginal society mm. is that the original politics includes the natural world in the decision-making process. <laughs> so yeah. it's a, and that is what is necessary. I mean, because the illusory idea that, that human beings can serve themselves apart from nature is a complete and total illusion and ultimately will fail and has failed. So that's why we've come to the place we are today and in our joy and our sustenance and our sacredness will emerge and and reside in our heart when we can reconnect our political thinking with the concerns of nature. Now, it's not that we're going to necessarily put a ballot box in front of rivers, trees, oceans, but we are not separate from them. No. You know, we could not breathe without the trees that give out the breath of life to us, and we return to them in a sacred circle. We could not be alive without standing on the warm foundation of Mother Earth, and we could not be alive without the breathing aware air. You know, we could not be alive without the elements. So, so why do we separate ourselves from those living elements, and why have we downgraded the elements to be the constituents of life only and not alive? They are alive. Yeah. 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 It's that disconnection from the body as a sacred instrument of life. Because the body is made up of all these elements of nature, and the body has been so abused, hasn't it? So individually, locally, and collectively. I've just been approached recently to assist in restoring. Can you imagine? We've come to a point where we're being invited to connect and to create and establish codes of law to preserve the water. I mean, it's like, what? How has it come to this that we need codes of law to remind us to ensure that we will remember again how to resacralize the earth? Yeah, well, because you're in Europe, you know, one of the things I talk about in in the book, Original Politics, is the difference between conservation in Europe and conservation in the United States. And they evolved in such different directions. So 
you know, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that it should be so obvious to that we need clean air, clean water, and this should not be a controversial issue. This should not be a politicized issue. Mm-hmm. And it was not in the United States as recently as the 1970s. Mm-hmm. In the Nixon administration, that's when the Environmental Protection Agency began. That's when the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts were passed, although I think Nixon vetoed the Clean Water Act, but, but it was overridden because everybody wanted clean air, clean water. And for some reason, the United States conservative impulse has gone totally toward laissez-faire politics, laissez-faire economics, and away from conserving what is truly important, the light, the air, the water, the earth. I mean, I'm a little more optimistic in Europe because um, from what I understand, I mean, some of the conservative impulse there does understand that, that the ecology is important. I think it comes from our divergent histories because Europeans obviously did a lot to destroy the ecology and the industrial revolution and beyond, but there was more of a an awakening of the precious resources and living on a smaller land mass. Whereas in America, ever since Thomas Jefferson, there's been this idea that, you know, America has this limitless resource and and, uh, this vast continent that can never be settled. But it has become settled because, you know, when the founding fathers started, imagine this, they did not have a steamboat no less, no less a railroad or an airplane. You can now travel in three minutes in an airplane what it took in a day to travel in that time by horseback. So that is why in the beginning of the United States, it really was formed as a partnership between Native America and Euro-America. And there was some genocide that occurred from the 17th century in, in certain cases, but it really doesn't become a full-scale genocide until the 19th century under Andrew Jackson. Um, so at first, the country is a partnership and is formed out of friendship, actually, between Native America and Euro-America over some values that were not fully understood or fully embraced by the Founding Fathers, to be clear. I mean, obviously, only white male property owners could vote. Eventually, it unfolds. I mean, I I write about these things, including the profound influence of Native American women in awakening and kick-starting the 19th century women's movement in America. And so it wasn't just on the men. So there was this beautiful influence that needs to come back now, because now things have played out in a certain way where where we have forgotten our sacredness. We've forgotten how the land is sacred. When I use the subtitle, Making America Sacred, again, I'm really talking about not just the nation, but the land. And so we must remember that the land is sacred and treat it that way. And if we do that, then we have an opportunity. And I'm wondering if I can read a piece that goes to your compassion from the book, if we have time. I don't know what you're... I would love that. Okay. Thank you. Well, this kind of ties back into your first question because, and uh, this comes near the end of the book. So after I've unfolded an arc of how Native America influenced the founding of the country, and then what I call the dance of the opposites, because the 
Democratic parties and the Republican parties, which were formed, the modern version was, took 100 years to form, then embarked in a dance of an, the opposite. So they became their opposite over time. As William Irwin Thompson say, we become what we hate mm. if we focus too much on something as opposition. Oh. So we need to learn to see difference as aspects of one whole. And so this heading is called, We Are All One. When the East Indian sage Ramana Maharshi was asked, how should we treat others? He replied, there are no others. This is on the deepest level true. What we see as other is only a projection of what we have rejected in ourselves. We may feel repelled by certain ideas and perspectives, but we are unwittingly dancing with them as shadow dances with light, always remaining connected. We suffer to the extent that our thoughts and perspectives feel separate from others and from nature, and we are healed to the extent we perceive them as emanating from the same source. The wide variation of political views acted out on the stage of life are ultimately different expressions of one whole. They mimic the enormous biodiversity of life here on Earth. Everything on Earth, from the earthworm to the eagle, mushroom, slug, flapping fish, or sunflower, are all nourished by the same sun, atmosphere, waters, and soil. People with different political views may seem different or act different, but your thoughts and theirs emanate from the same well of consciousness. There is far more that connects us than separates us. It is important to always keep that in mind. Once we recognize the truth of how we are all connected, it becomes easier to stand back and look again at people with whom we disagree on one thing or another, including politics. The etymology of the word respect is to look again. It is a simple concept. If our first impulse is to judge, dismiss, or denigrate the other individual, look again. Everywhere we look is the face of our teacher. We can learn from everyone, even if the only thing we learn is what is a bad example. Respect is ultimately not about judging. To respect someone is to make an effort to understand them, to realize they too are sacred, an equal part of creation. Viva la différence, as the French say, we are in the dance of life together. Moreover, the people who irritate us the most can be our greatest teachers. This includes any politician you might find irritating. If you are a laissez-faire conservative who believes in the authority of free markets, you might be irritated by Senator Sanders or Representative Ocasio-Cortez. But look again, they were elected at this time for a reason. The same is true for Donald Trump. He can be a teacher too, and not only because of providing what is a bad example. There is something we can learn from the fact that Trump became president at this time. And so if he or any other politician irritates you, consider it an opportunity to explore. What is it about him or her that irritates you? Is it something within you that you believe you have rejected only to project upon another? Psychological projection occurs whenever we are uncomfortable seeing in another an aspect of ourselves we think we have overcome, but really have not. If we have totally overcome a fault within ourselves, the other person would not bother us. 
we would maintain poise and equanimity. This is, of course, very hard to do. Everyone I know has some rough edges yet to be polished. I know I do. I would be dishonest if I said that Donald Trump does not irritate me on occasion. Okay, frequently. <laughs> but some of what I see as his negative characteristics, vanity, inflated sense of self-importance, insecurity, are things I have struggled with as a fellow human being. If I had completely overcome these characteristics, I would not be bothered by Trump. He may or may not be an extreme example of these faults. In a way, it does not matter. I need to stand back and look at the man again. And I go on to talk about looking at him through his eyes and realizing that he, you know, he wants to be perceived as successful, even if it's only to satisfy his ego, and not saying at all that I agree with him. In fact, I go on to say I could not disagree more with Trump when it comes to his ecological policies, America First policies, or his opposition to asylum seekers fleeing embattled countries. Hmm. Nothing is more important to me than protecting the environment, having peace between nations, and for America to be a beacon of hope for those in need. I am still moved, as I was when a child, by the Emma Lazarus poem inscribed upon the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. And I go on to say that uh, I'm oddly grateful for Trump the trickster. I portray him as a trickster in the book, and not a, not a conscious trickster, but an unwitting trickster, Mm. Um, because he has been playing a sacred role in America's unfolding, even as he does not know it. You know, it could be that Donald Trump is the only person who could have played this part. So all the painful experiences we are now enduring from the white nationalist violence to the kids locked in cages on the southern border are playing a role in our national awakening. We are awakening to the true sacred purpose of America, and Donald Trump is helping us awaken, however unwittingly, and I'll just read one more thing. On a mystical level, Ramana Maharshi is correct. There are no others. Donald Trump is us. Mitch McConnell is us. Nancy Pelosi is us. All our elected officials are reflection of us. Reflections of us. We, the people, voted them in. They have a role to play in the bigger picture, and so do we. The very least we owe these elected officials is the same respect and compassion every human being deserves. Some may represent the worst of America, but that is a part of America we apparently need to see. After our 45th president is gone, the nation must not simply go back to normal, but instead aspire to a higher purpose in keeping with the original vision of unity and diversity inculcated by Native America. We must seize this moment during the Trump presidency and its aftermath to uncover the deeper truths about America. It is possible to appreciate why America has been a beacon of hope and light and also acknowledge the shadowy past our country has yet to overcome. So that's, that gives you some feeling, I think. Good heavens. Well, it's like you've brought us back full circle to you know, the very beginning and to your friend, the elder, who really demonstrated and taught you how in order to be compassionate, you have to be big enough, spacious enough in your awareness to be able to hold and stay in the center of your own sovereignty, stay at home in the sovereignty of, of life itself as it lives through you, but also to be able to, within that, to be able to hold this widening, ever widening field of diversity and 
opposition and reactivity and the whole darkness and light of the human game at the moment. Mm. And so, well said. Yeah, well my, said. Well, my sense is that you're writing, and for me, voicing, so exploring through poetry and silence, of course, and sung voice and so on. And I love that that also plays a really significant part in your own life. And you, you mentioned your wife plays the cello. And mm. what do you most love to sing? What part does singing or poetry play in the sacralizing and, and restoring of your own journey? You're really assisting us to understand the whole picture, just even your description of the difference between European and American politics and our relationship with the land and so on. It's just so fascinating to be aware that even that itself has to be understood. We have to understand. I was just listening yesterday to friends of mine in Australia, for example, who are creating coral fields all over Australia. And I'm fascinated to discover that most of those coral fields are being organized and sung by people who are essentially immigrants to Australia. And mm. then there's these other extraordinary stories of the Aboriginal voices that are really being reclaimed and resacralized as we speak. It was only 200 years since colonialism landed in Australia. And during that time, the original 45,000-year-old, one of the, the oldest culture in, of our planet, was defined as animals. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? And yet now we're living in this time of total dissolution. When I think I live in Bristol in, in the United Kingdom, and it's where the first colonial statues were nonviolently pulled down just a few weeks ago. <laughs> Um, mm. You know, and it's so interesting just talking to the police because they they stood by and watched. I mean, that's mm. pretty far out, isn't it? Mm. It is an extraordinary time, isn't it? It um, is. And thank God for your books because those of us that aren't so historically aware are more drawn to hysterical rather than historical <laughs> forms of behavior you know just because we're not we don't we haven't bothered you know we, we, <laughs> you know, we haven't you. Uh, we haven't been in a position or we haven't chosen should we say or we haven't had the confidence or the courage to dare ourselves to actually look and see what our breed uh, of humanity is responsible for you bring up so much. Um, well, you're so inspiring. Uh, you, you, I mean, I just well, you're very kind. I, if I might respond, I, I, I think that one of the things we have to do is to be compassionate for how all things evolved and how certain cultures think in a certain way. Very good. You know, one of the things I tried to delve into in both original thinking book and in original politics is what is the seed of colonization? How did that idea even start? Right. And a lot of it I found has to do with the concept of time. And in the West, it didn't used to be that there was an idea of linear time at all. Instead, there was, you know, the in the time of Plato and Aristotle, they understood that time unfolded in the energy of a circle. 
Of course, all ancient cultures had to be highly attentive to the rhythms of a particular place in order to know when to plant, when to harvest, when to hunt, you know, to watch the migration patterns of animals, etc. So the cycles of life were first the most important, but when we shifted our attention to imagining that time was a line, and we did that, you know, first we did it and it kind of folded in together between science and art and consciousness. So in Europe, when we have the Renaissance, we invent linear perspective, and then we begin to believe that's real. That's why we call those kinds of paintings realism. Oh. Then we, we came upon the illusory idea that distance from the origin was progress. And that, I think, is the seed of colonization. It's the seed of taking abstract knowledge from one place to another and thinking that we're at the head of the parade. And that's when we began to, to belittle cultures who were still in tune with the rhythms of a particular place. So it's, it's not always that the, the white man or the European mentality was evil as much as it actually, you know, the old idea, they said the so-called white man's burden, you know, <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's a silly phrase in a way, but it comes from this idea that they think they're ahead and they're really not, you know, that's all cultures brilliant. change and evolve. That's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> and also that's just such a compassionate response to the kind of what has become a kind of unconscious guilt that's being demonstrated now right across the street. There's sort of guilt even for being white at all, you know, that, that's showing up now, of course, for many people. Right. So some of the things that, that, that white civilizations colonized, they first colonized their own mind. <laughs> so we have to decolonize not just um, indigenous people who we mistreated, but we have to decolonize ourselves to awaken to the fact that we really are one with nature. And that's what I, you know, I'm contending in the end of original politics, that if we rekindle biophilia, a love for nature, then we will be able to rekindle a love for each other. Because what is nature is this immense array of biodiversity. It's a polysymphonic orchestra, since you're, you understand music. Oh, yeah. I and so <laughs> yeah, It's a polysymphonic orchestra. It is not a cause and effect, one sound after another. It's yeah. all happening at the same time. I love that. Well, it's, it's such a beautiful place and time for us to complete this part of the conversation, but I would love to carry on this conversation with you in the future. And meanwhile, we all need to be sure to read Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again, preceded by Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity and Nature. Glenn, I thank you so much for this very rich moment just to open the door really uh, on your understanding of compassion i love that the most compassionate thing we can do is to decolonize the mind that is yes. just so brilliant i love that i love that i'm taking that away and i'm going to reflect on that very deeply thank um, you bless you thank you so much is there any little song you would like to finish or a chant you mentioned you like chanting if there was oh no that's fine if you because you are the you're the naked voice i sure <laughs> i i love to sing too so um one chant that i sing is just very simple yeah. uh, um, 
Swaha, swaha. That's a short one. I love that. <laughs> May we indeed move from darkness into light. Yes. Um, oh, thank you so much. From falsehood into truth and from time into timelessness into eternal presence. Yeah. Like William Faulkner said, the past is never dead. In fact, it isn't even past. Ah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I love so that. So thank you. Well, oh, you God know. bless, Glenn. Thank you so much. And every blessing with your next book. But right now, let's stay with original politics. My goodness. Oh, the next book is original love. Oh, Where are we heading next? This, <laughs> oh, now you're talking. <laughs> okay. All right. Beautiful journey. God bless. And thank you so much. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you for everything you do and for your beautiful voice in the world. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. The sound inside.